Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Right now, if, if you were to open your phone and Google or whatever search engine you use, um, where can I watch the Oprah interview? Which interview do you think might pop up? Harry and Meghan. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, that's, that's how Google will interpret your question. Where can I watch the Oprah interview? Of all the interviews she's ever done, Harry and Meghan. Disney princesses have progressed from helpless damsels in, dis- in distress to, to brave and strong. But princesses, they remain born to rule. It's not just children, it's also adults. So Netflix is the crown. How many of you have watched The Crown? Many of you, most of you, it's must-see TV, right? Though we are a nation that is born out of rebellion from a king, there's an irony in that we remain enamored with royalty. Monarchy has proven a very resilient idea, I mean, in, in, in imagination and in fact. It's been the primary form of government historically, and today, depending on how you count, 43 nations still have queens and kings. In an op-ed in the New York Times, Farrah Stockman writes this. She says, The concept of royalty is both enduringly compelling and entirely natural, so much so that it can occupy the four-year-old's entire imaginary world. If princesses suddenly ceased to exist, she writes, I'm quite sure that my daughter would reinvent them. Sure she would, and so would we. In fact, the point is, that is what we do. It is a widely accepted truism of the, the human nature of humans is that we tend to, if not literally, then at least figuratively, spiritually, crown kings. You know, it's been said many times by many pastors, it is not a matter of if we are ruled by something, but who or what rules us. It's not a matter of if we have a queen or king, but who or what is our king. And this is C.S. Lewis's point when he puts it this way. He says, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires or athletes, or film stars instead. We could extend the list. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, he says, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Referring to those rare instances when someone is just so starving for food that they will literally eat poison. He says, spiritual nature will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Well, the message of Palm Sunday at its simplest form is this. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And that's what the palms and the songs and the cloaks and the donkey, that's what it means. So that's the main point. To use Lewis's analogy, Jesus' kingship is true food. It's true food for your soul. But starved of true food, you'll, you'll turn to gobbling poisons. Instead of Worshiping King Jesus, you might worship celebrities or, or athletes or politicians or, or billionaires or YouTube stars or you could go on and on. Or more likely, the popularity, the success, the fame, the beauty, the fitness, the health, the power, the wealth that your king embodies. So today's gospel invites us to consider crowning Jesus king above these lesser kings. You don't have to crown him king. Jesus is never going to force you to crown him king. That's not his style. But this gospel text gives us at least three reasons why I suggest you should consider it. 
First, crown Jesus king because he's king of the calendar. He's king of the past and he's king of the future. So the gospel text begins in Luke 19, verse 28, where Luke writes this, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he writes going on ahead up to Jerusalem, he means literally up. The whole gospel of Luke is shaped as a journey towards Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, the city of the king. And Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem by way of Jericho. Jericho is the lowest permanently inhabited, inhabited city on earth. It's 800 feet below sea level, right by the Dead Sea. Jerusalem, in contrast, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So Jesus' 3,250-foot hike, 18 miles from Jericho to the heights of Jerusalem, actually signals a story that is climbing to its dizzying heights. It's about to climax. And Luke is about to dedicate now one-third of the words of his entire gospel, written before Microsoft Word, spaces a premium on a scroll. He spends the last third of his scroll on the final week of Jesus' life, one week out of like 1,700. That's a way of just like highlighting, bright yellow highlighter. But before Jesus enters and before he joins the throngs of visitors that are funneling into Jerusalem for Passover week, he orchestrates some very odd events that both reveal him to be the king, as we've said, but also signal the nature of his kingship, what kind of king he is. And the first odd revelation of his kingship comes as Jesus predicts the future. And he pauses at the Mount of Olives, a very significant detail. Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead, and he says, if the owner objects to you taking this donkey, say these words and he'll let it. And that's exactly what happens. The disciples go ahead and find everything just as Jesus said they would. Jesus is king. He has mastery over the past and the future. Listen, this detail, the Mount of Olives. Think about the Mount of Olives if you're, if you're studied in the Old Testament. The Mount of Olives is the place where God's presence left the temple, the prophet Ezekiel says. And it hovers over the temple, and it goes to the east, over the Mount of Olives, and departs. And this is the most painful grievous thing in Israel's history in their past, 500 years prior to Jesus' coming. But then Ezekiel promises in Ezekiel 43 that the glory of God of Israel is going to come back from the east, from the Mount of Olives, and the sound is going to be like the sound of mighty waters, and the earth is going to shine with his glory. And then and only then, the prophet Ezekiel writes, that after the Lord comes back from the Mount of Olives, back from the east. He's going to go into his temple and rebuild it and cleanse it. And so what does Jesus do? He pauses at the, the Mount of Olives. He goes into Jerusalem, and he goes right to the temple to cleanse it. So every learned man, woman, and child would have seen this miracle worker who acted as God and who said, in me the greater temple is here, would see him coming from the Mount of Olives from the east and going to the temple and see that Jesus is claiming to be the very glory of God, returning to restore what had been lost in Israel's most painful moment. The devastating abandonment of Israel's past is now being remedied by Jesus. And it isn't the main point to make this morning, but it's worth pointing out nonetheless that those of you who struggle with a devastating past, you have a king, a king of the past, and he comes, I mean, this is the incarnation, right? He comes precisely to enter into your pain and to redeem what has been lost and to redeem what has been broken, to bring forgiveness and restoration. The past is not beyond the bounds of this king's healing. Moreover, he's the king of the future. Because in the simple instructions to the disciples, as we've said, he tells them exactly what to expect. He demonstrates this miraculous foreknowledge. 
Now, it's always happening in the Gospels. He sees Nathanael under the fig tree. He, he prophesies of his death in Jerusalem. He um, over and over again displays miraculous foreknowledge. And the ability to see into the future belongs to God alone. That's an attribute. Everyone knows that's an attribute of God, not man. It is Sarah's servant, Hagar, who first called God the God who sees. She said, he's the God who sees me. Because God saw her in her distress and promised her a future for her son, and so it was. King Jesus, being God, is the God who sees you. He knows what is to come. It's not beyond the bounds of his providence, his foreknowledge, how it works with our free will, I do not know. But I know that every joy and every sorrow that has come or will come, it is accounted for in his wisdom. And this means that your life is not like a tree that falls in the forest and no one sees it. It is not lost. Even hundreds of years from now, should the earth endure, your life is remembered and seen by God. All that has happened and all that will happen is seen, and he knows how to redeem it. He can promise you a happy ending to your story because he knows without a doubt how the story ends. Um, our bishop was here. I don't remember which sermon. He, he says it often. I've seen him say it. But COVID did not catch God by surprise, and God was not pacing around up in heaven just, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do now? The whole thing is just, oh, no. And, it, and again, the devastating violence in Ukraine, the, the atrocity, it can't unwrite the final chapter of the story because it's seen and known and written by God. Every tear will be accounted for. Violence and death will be undone. Every sad thing will come untrue. Jesus never once said something that didn't come to pass, not once. Every time he predicted the future, the future verified his seeing. He's the God who sees. So crown him king because he's king of the past. He's king of the future. He can redeem your past. He sees and knows how to lead you into a glorious future. Only King Jesus. Second, crown him king because he's the king on a colt. Despite our enamoration with kings and queens, we also have a certain fear of them, don't we? I mean, the world is tending towards democracy, if you look at history. But we have a fear of, of, of kings. Why? Because often kings become tyrants, don't they? I mean, we, we need look no further than Putin right now. It is a spiritual truism that power tends to corrupt. Power tends to corrupt. This is plainly seen on the world political stage. It's obvious. It is also seen within the church. And too many of you, I know, from knowing your stories, have experienced that, the, the emotional and spiritual and, and practical pain that comes when church leaders, who I think begin with, with good intentions for the most part, I mean, if you listen to the Mars Hill podcast, Driscoll himself, I think, began with good intentions, but, but end up being twisted by, by just the, the spiritual weight. or They get twisted into spiritual and emotional knots by the weight of power, that their, their shoulders are just too fragile to handle. Now, ancient art testifies to the, the tyranny of the world's kings. Sculpted slabs from Babylon and, and the tombs and murals of Egypt and Persia and Roman columns and all these depict worldly kings perched high upon war horses or upon chariots, lording over the conquered, bowed, or, or dead bodies of their foes. And that's a picture of worldly kingship. Here's Jesus, the king on a colt. The colt has a double meaning. First, most obviously, it's a fulfillment of prophecy from Zechariah 9, where the prophet writes, Rejoice greatly, Zion. Shout aloud, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So here again is the basic meaning of Palm Sunday. Jesus is king. I hope I don't owe Kanye royalties every time I say that. Um, what's his name? It doesn't matter. Anyways, recognize now that Jesus was purposely orchestrating the events that led to his death. He was in charge of this, right? So he was going not as a victim, but as a volunteer out of love for God and love for you. But he's triumphant upon a donkey. Imagine Pilate looking out from his mighty fortress, seeing this little king come on this little animal. What a, what a ridiculous spectacle. Some king, he had to think. And in the eyes of the powerful kings of the world, this is a joke. But this is a fitting image for the kingdom of God. I mean, just imagine it. This humble donkey, not a war horse, not a chariot. Jesus humbly on this stubborn little animal. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of humility. And the reason why kings become tyrants, it's not because they're kings. It's not necessary that kings become tyrants. It's because most kings begin to taste power, and then they crown power king, and they just can't get enough. And they need more and more and more, and they become enslaved to the power that they desire. But Jesus is victorious not through force, but through humility. He doesn't worship and adore and serve power. So for those of you who maybe have never understood my obsession with Lord of the Rings, this is the very heart of it right here. It really is. Tolkien's hobbits, they're not large. They're not strong. They're not adventurous. Frodo's unique strength is his long-suffering ability to resist the ring's invitation to power. Evil, says Peter Kreeft, is always defeated by the free, loving renunciation of power. It can be defeated in Middle-earth, just as it was on Calvary, by martyrdom. Evil is limited to power. It cannot use weakness. It is limited to pride. It cannot use humility, because evil is actually a parasite. It's not a thing in and of itself. It leeches to something, but it can't even leech itself to humility. It has no power. And this is Gandalf's point as he advises the humble road to victory to the council. He says, our enemy, referring to Sauron, is very wise. And he weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that Sauron knows is desire for power. And so he judges all other hearts. Into Sauron's heart, the thought will not enter that any will refuse power, that having the ring of power, they may seek to destroy it. It's just incomprehensible that someone would do such a thing. So he doesn't defend the one place it can be destroyed. He's looking elsewhere to the armies. It's all about getting strong and power and massing these huge armies. But the humble hobbits just march right in. The devil could not have imagined the cross. And that he, he couldn't have imagined that the cross was actually his demise. Because evil is a formidable foe. It is, but it has an Achilles heel on this. It cannot conquer weakness. So the king on a colt did not come to defeat Rome with a swing of the sword, as we heard read. Put your sword away. He heals the ear. No. He came to defeat sin with his suffering and death. He's the anti-tyrant, the only king who humbled himself, choosing his own death so that you might have life. What other king has died for you, for your good? King Jesus rides a colt to victory. He comes to serve, not to be served. He bows to wash his disciples' feet, which we will do this Thursday. You know what this means? It means that every time you choose humility in your relationships, in your marriage, in your friendships, at work, every time you choose humility in someone else's good instead of your own, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus, and you win. And everybody wins. 
I mean, can you imagine the transformation of our world? If for 24 hours, every person on the planet chose the cult over the war chariot, if every person on the planet chose humility instead of power, think about how our homes would change, how our businesses would change, how society would change. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of the king who rides a cult. Lastly, crown Jesus king because he's the king of all creation. Did you notice the little detail in verse 30 that the cult was a, a cult that has never been ridden? Why? Well, first, because it's common for young, unused animals to be set aside for sacred tasks, and this was a sacred task. But secondarily, anyone who's worked with donkeys or horses, horses and donkeys are different, but donkeys have a reputation. They are stubborn. stubborn. A donkey that has never been ridden, never been broken in, will not suddenly gentle even at the hand of the most trained expert. Yet it's as if this donkey overhears the words of uh, the disciples to the owner of the donkey. The Lord has need of it. And the donkey's ears perk up. And it's as if he's gentled by the sacred task for which he has been appointed to bear the Lord of creation to his death. And so it does it. It's like the wind that was calmed by Jesus at his command. This gentle donkey evidences the presence of the king of all creation. Creation is listening to him and responding and obeying. And then the disciples begin to do the math. They begin to add up the, the, the deeds of power that they've seen him do. And they add to them now the ancient prophecies they're seeing fulfilled. He's coming from the east, from the Mount of Olives. He's riding a donkey. Oh my gosh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Messiah, he's finally here. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And the Pharisees, meanwhile, look on in disgust. Jesus is being proclaimed king, and the Pharisees spit, teacher. And that's Luke's word for someone who at best hasn't decided on Jesus, but at worst despises him. Teacher, they spit. Tell your disciples to stop. And look what Jesus says in response in verse 40. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, it's not just donkeys who obey the king of creation. The very stones will sing of Jesus' triumph. This hints at what is more obvious elsewhere. It's kind of a soapbox of mine, if you haven't noticed. The king of creation has not come simply so that you can get forgiven and punch your ticket to heaven and leave this tired earth behind. You and I, yes, we get forgiven, but all of creation is redeemed. All of creation is going to be wrapped up in the course of salvation. Every stone, every donkey, every animal, every tree, every river, all of creation redeemed. The psalmist sings this truth in Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. Can you imagine the trees singing for joy? I wonder what a redeemed tree will, will, will look like, sound like. This means that the kingdom of Jesus is not up there in heaven, and this world is not just to be left behind. No, it's to be redeemed. We're not trying to escape this sinful mess of a world, to just play the harp until our shiny little fingers fall off. <laughs> Jesus is king of heaven and earth, and he will redeem the very stones. Heaven on earth, that's the kingdom. So there it is. The foil of the Pharisees represents a choice for you and I for everyone that encounters the story of Jesus. This story invites us, to put it crassly, to take sides. It does. Will we silence Jesus the teacher, like the Pharisees, or will we crown Jesus the king, 
like the disciples. And really, each time we encounter him in his word, that's the choice we make. It's an ongoing choice. We come across a hard teaching of his, teacher, be quiet. Or, you're the king. So for the first time or for the thousandth time, I encourage you this morning to crown Jesus king. He won't force you to, but here's why I think you should consider it. Well, first of all, because he is. And because, remember, Lewis said, spiritual nature will be served. You will crown a king of your life. Jesus' kingship is true food. And if you neglect to worship him and crown him king, you will turn to gobbling poisons. You'll worship some plaything, some idol, some idol that doesn't care about you, definitely never died for you. And you become addicted to things like power and wealth and status and fame and popularity and grades and, and sports and, and whatever it is. I mean, my, my soccer team lost yesterday, a really, really sad loss. I was so upset all afternoon. I had to pray about that. It's like, Lord, is Arsenal an idol? Maybe. Um, but you see, when we give our hearts to things that aren't Jesus, oh, we serve them. And they're tyrants. They're like the kings of Rome in Jesus' day. Julius Caesar, Domitian, Nero, these men demanded that the people worship them, literally bow down and kiss their ring as, as their, their God, or they're going to die. And where, where is Caesar and Domitian and Nero now? I mean, their bones are, are less than dust. So much for the way of power. But this very morning, billions of Christians are gathered all over the world, young and old, rich and poor, black and white and brown, and everything in between, on every continent, with the name of Jesus on their lips. Because, as we heard read this morning, Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's the king. He's the king of the past and the future. He's the king on a colt. He's the king of creation. So then I invite you this holy week, join in the shout of the stones. Join in the song of the trees and sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.